This program is brought to you by Bible Media, under the oversight of the elders of the Chipman Road Congregation in Lee Summit, Missouri. You can think about this. A reformed life is a changed life. What does God require of one to have a reformed life? We think about, we hear that phrase, we've talked about it over the last few weeks, we've mentioned it several times, uh, the phrase that many people use, and they refer to themselves as a born-again Christian. A born-again Christian, in a scriptural sense, is someone who has changed their life and is now adhering to the commandments and the words of God and are a follower, a learner of Christ. And we find in Isaiah chapter 1, a reformed life. We begin by looking at uh, worship and fellowship from a pure heart. And in order to have a worship, have worship and fellowship from a pure heart, one must take certain steps. And the first is, as we find in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Now this is a spiritual cleansing. This is not a reference to a actual physical go out and you know take a shower and get cleaned up. He's talking about a spiritual removing the the filth. It's a, in a sense here being referenced as sin. We know that many times throughout the Bible we find where sin is mentioned as a blot or as something that has stained the garment of a Christian. We find in Revelation that those who are, who are uh, wearing robes of white are referenced as those who are living a life that's pure before God. Their lives are without spot or blemish. In fact, the Christian is to be presented to God without spot or blemish. And so is the church, referencing the idea that they are be presented before God without sin on their lives. And we find here in Isaiah 1 and verse 16, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. This is a command to the people which they must obey. If we are to be pleasing the sight of God, we must do what is necessary to make ourselves clean. If man repents and changes his life, God forgives and blots out sin. Now think about that. If man repents and changes his life, and I've always thought about it, I shouldn't say always, I've, I've thought about it really in three steps. I think about repentance. I think about it how it's a change of mind, a change of heart, and then also a change of action. Because if our mind changes about how we view sin, then our heart will say, it's time we change. It's time what you're doing is wrong. And then results in a change of action. We have seen, we've seen many times probably the idea of a U-turn being referenced and turning away from sin, the idea of being a U-turn, turning away from sin and turning to God and how God allows U-turns in life. And in fact, he encourages us to turn away from sin and to turn to him. And so if a man repents and changes his life, God forgives and blots out sin. Psalm 51 and verse, verses 1 and 2 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Doesn't that go hand in hand what we find here in Isaiah when he tells us to wash yourselves and make yourselves clean? Well, we can wash ourselves and have our sins blotted out or washed away. Sometimes you have a reference there being wiped out 
Well, those things are done when we obey the word of God. We find there in verse 1 of Psalm, 150, uh, Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. He recognizes that God is merciful. Then he calls upon him to blot out his transgressions. And then we find the similarity we find here in Isaiah. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We know as we live under the New Testament law, that happens at baptism. Our sins are washed away. We look next at the second step. That is to put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. That is from before the eyes of God. This was a command to abolish idolatry. That's the command. Idolatry, we know, as we've mentioned many times before, doesn't have to come in the form of an idol on a desk or an idol on a mantle. It can come, it's anything that comes before, before, before God. We think about our priority list and what's most important. If God isn't the number one thing, then whatever it is, that's your idol. And sometimes it's ourselves. We are to remove worship that is faulty, that is worship that is a sham. Now, is there worship today that is faulty, worship that is shameful before God? Well, any worship that is done in a way that is not directed, is not as is prescribed in the New Testament today, is faulty. In fact, you find there in the book of Matthew how Christ says they worship him in vain because they teach as if it's doctrine, the commandments of men. And so therefore their worship becomes vain. He goes on, to, we go and look at our next point here. Put away all those who accompany you in doing evil. So it's not just abolishing idolatry. It's not just removing worship that is faulty, worship that is a sham. But also it's removing yourself away from those who are doing that with you. Removing the encouragement to do evil. Removing the encouragement to do evil. You know, that's something, I think that's an important step to consider because it's one thing to remove yourself from sin, but it's another thing to remove yourself from those who are encouraging you to sin. One of the hardest things after becoming a Christian is realizing that maybe there's some individuals who are encouraging you to sin that you have to, not say, purge from your circle and purge from your circle of influence. And that's what we find here. Put away, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. We see next year, step number three, cease to do evil. Cease to do evil. With the putting away of all false worship, God commanded putting away all moral evil in worship and toward one's fellow man. That is, cease to do evil in general. Stop doing those things which are wicked and start doing those things we'll see in a moment which are pleasing to God. And all three commands are essential. First, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Second, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. And third, cease to do evil. That's the three-step plan from God to be able to worship and have fellowship with, with Him from a pure heart. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The person who has cleansed themselves and washed themselves from sin, the person has put away the evil doings that they've been doing, the person has ceased to do evil, that results in a Christian. It results in a person who is striving to faithfully follow God. But that's not all that God says as we continue looking here at Isaiah chapter 1. We find in verse 17, what must be done in order to find acceptance 
with God. What must be done in order to find acceptance with God? First, we find here they must learn to do good. Learn to do good. This demand indicates that man does not inherently know what is right. He must be taught. The Word of God teaches us to do what is good, to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. It tells us what is pleasing in the sight of God. Second, Isaiah reminds us by saying that the people are so far gone and evil, they must be taught what is well and good in God's sight. Now you think about that today, there are those today who are so immersed and overcome by evil that they have to be taught what is morally right before God. There are those today who do not consider what God finds to be good and pleasing and wholesome. Well, yes, there are plenty of people today who do not know any of those things. And so part of coming out of evil and ceasing to do evil and putting away the evil of your doings, as we saw in verse 16, requires learning to do good. Learning to do good. We find next in verse 17, not only learn to do good, but to seek justice. Seek justice. With this, seeking justice is the opposite of seeking perversity. That is, we seek what is just, what is good, what is upright. Thus, be upright and honest in all your doings. No one wants to be around someone who's not honest and upright. Somebody says something and then turns around and says something else. That's not honest and upright. And I like to use this example. We've only lived a few places, but anytime we've moved, one of the first things I try to find is a good mechanic. I try to find one that's honest, that's upright, and that's not always easy to do. Once I do, boy, I write down their number, they're in my phone, and I use them every time I need them. Because once they have convinced me they're honest and upright, that's who I want to use. Christian relationships should be the same way. We want to surround ourselves with those who are honest and upright. And the first thing we want to do is make sure that our ways are honest and upright before God. We also want to make sure that we are not secretive or, or manipulating people by our actions because those things are indeed sinful. Not being secretive and not being one who manipulates others is part of being upright and honest and is part of seeking justice and not perversity. We find next in verse 17, to rebuke the oppressor. Rebuke the oppressor. You know, there are those today who do not, not only do they not try to help others in need, but sometimes they're the, they're the ones who are the source of people who are they're the, or the cause of someone being in need or being oppressed. We want to be those who relieve the oppressed. Oppression had grown, as you find here in Isaiah's day, grown out of the corrupt judicial system. Well, we know there are those today who are oppressed in various different ways because of the system which we are under. But indifference, as we find here in Isaiah's time, was displayed toward the rights of others. There are always those who are overlooked, those who are abused, those who are not cared for, Sometimes we think about today, we maybe we think about our veterans, maybe we think about those who are older, maybe we think about the poor. There are those who are not helped as much as they should be. And we find here the Christian is to relieve the oppressed, or those, you might say, who are hard-pressed sometimes, to be able to make, make their way through this life. We are to be those who help those individuals, to relieve the oppressed and those who are struggling. And this goes right along what we find in, later in verse 17, when he tells us to defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. 
You notice how all these things are honorable things? The Christian is not to be abusive, not to be harsh. Instead, the Christian is to do what? Well, look at verse 17. They are to learn to do good, to seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, not rebuke any person, but the oppressor, to defend the fatherless and to plead for the widow. Those are honorable and noble traits, not just for any man, but for the Christian especially. To have those things, a person who has these traits, you want them by your side. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Those who, who have had no father or husband to safeguard their rights should be protected by the judges, is what Isaiah is talking about during his time. But today we try to help those who are in need as well to the best of our ability. These groups that we find here have, have been neglected by the rulers and judges for there was no profit in spending time in their behalf. And so during Isaiah's time, he's talking about how the judges should have been trying to help those who are in need, not just the widows, but also the orphans, also those who have been oppressed, but it wasn't happening. And so Isaiah pleads for the Christian to do these things. Such practical reforms must follow the cleansing that God demanded. So let's back up for a moment. Verse 17, learn to do good. And who teaches us what is good? God's word does. Seek justice, that is being upright, noble, and honest, forthright. Rebuke the oppressor, that means we are on the side, and we are on the side of the oppressed, and we are to be those who help relieve the oppressed. And we defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. We help those who have a hard time finding help elsewhere. Those are noble traits. But what else? What are some lessons we can learn from this today? This leads us right into verse 18. You think about that phrase in verse 18 when he tells us, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is probably, anytime someone asks me verses, I think I have several. You know, this is one of my favorite verses because you read it and think, what a tremendous verse to, to read and to think about what that means. It means God will wipe away our sins, uh, wipe away the sins of the obedient. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Though they be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's a tremendous thing to think about when we think about what that means. The cleansing of our sins. That should be one of our favorite verses. But notice how he starts off here in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Well, we find in verses 16, we find the what? Make yourselves right before God so you can have the right fellowship and the right worship with God. And then we find how, what, what you are to learn to do. And then we find in verse 18, you just come to reason together, not with just anyone, but the Bible says, says the Lord, you're reasoning together with God. That means if you want to know what is right, what is good, you come to God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. Isn't it interesting how God goes right to the point? Let us, well, let us discuss these things. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they're red, he says, like crimson. This be as white as snow, this be white as wool. God will take care of the sin problem that man has if we are obedient. 
What were they reasoning about with God? They were reasoning about their sins, reasoning about their way of life before God. Though they had sins, they could be cleansed and white as snow. But notice also next, verses 19 and 20. He says, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Now think about that first word, if. That's conditional. Is if you do these things, if you are willing and obedient. Now there are those today who are willing, but they're not obedient. And you can't be obedient and be unwilling because if you're obedient, you're already willing. But there are those, they, they're willing, but they're not willing to be obedient. They're willing to acknowledge God, but not willing to be obedient to God. We find here in verse 19, <coughs> he tells us this is a condition that if you are willing and obedient to things, then what? Then you shall eat the good of the land. God promises goodness to those who are obedient. He doesn't promise wealth and health like some would say, but he promises what? He promises eternal life. Throughout the Old Testament, the idea of the promised land is a physical promised land. And in some cases, Moses and others talk about the promised land, which they only see with their eye of faith, as we talk about many times, which is, of course, heaven. But he references many times the, the promised land, which referred to as the land that flows with milk and honey and all those types of things. Because that's what they knew. That's what they were familiar with. But if we are those who are willing to be obedient to God, willing and obedient, we will be blessed not only in this life, but spiritual blessings, which of course include salvation, most importantly of all, but also we'll be blessed in the life to come if we meet the conditions which are willingness and obedience. Let's look at verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, now here's the consequence, isn't it? Here's the part a lot of people would like to talk about. I like to read verse 19 all day and night. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. But verse 20, <coughs> what happens? If you refuse and rebel, you should be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, he could be talking about a literal sword in the context here, but for us today, in the spiritual sense, if we rebel, refuse and rebel against God, we will never make it away from the threat of hell. We will face eternal punishment because we have refused and we have rebelled. Refusal and rebellion results in punishment as always. That's always the case. You cannot refuse and rebel and expect to get off. What would happen if you refuse and rebel against the laws of the land? Sooner or later, even in our weak system, you're probably going to go to jail at some point. You're going to pay a fine. You're going to have things happen to you if you refuse and rebel and continue to do so. And the same thing happens with God. If you refuse and rebel, on the day of judgment, there's no escape. You have the punishment that's going to come from God because you have refused to obey Him who's been trying to save your soul, who has made it available for you to have your soul redeemed and have your sins cleansed and those things washed away, have your soul cleansed and your sins washed away. But if you refuse and rebel, he says in verse 20, you shall be devoured. Now notice, he doesn't say you might be devoured. He says you shall. That is, it's a certainty. You ever hear someone say, well, 
how can a just God send someone to hell? And we've had we've talked about this before in a lesson uh, describing this exact point. How can loving God send someone to hell? Well, the result is we send ourselves to hell by our disobedience. God has told us what happens, so who condemns us? We condemn ourselves. Our sinful actions condemn us to hell. And so we only do, by, by our disobedience, we bring about our own sentence, our own conclusion in this life. So we think about this idea here in verse 20, you shall be devoured by the sword. God will punish you by what? Bringing about the consequences we have been warned about over and over again since the beginning of time, quite literally. You remember what God told Adam and Eve? The moment you eat of this tree, you'll die. From the very beginning, and then we get all the way down to the book of Revelation, the same thing. Revelation 2 and verse 10, what does it say? Be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful until death. But if you refuse and rebel, what happens? You'll never see eternal life with God. As we close this evening, the Christian life must be a truly reformed life, a truly changed life. The Christian life is a different life from the worldly world that we see around us. If we act and talk and live and act just like the world, then we're of the world. Putting on a t-shirt that says, you know, some kind of Bible verse doesn't change that. If we are living like everybody else, then we're just like everybody else. Therefore, we must look to God and to God's word for guidance in living a life that, is, that has been changed by God and his word. That's what it means to have a reformed life. We have changed our life. We have altered it to be in line with the word of God. We talked about this morning, I think it was in Bible class, about how we mold our lives around the Bible and not the other way around. Because when we mold our lives around the Bible, we are forming our lives to fit with the word of God. Anything else is not pleasing to God. We are to shape in our lives according to the word of God. So for that reason, we can see that the Christian life is a truly reformed life. The Christian life is different from the worldly life. And the Christian, therefore, must look to God's word for guidance in living life, living a life that is changed by God and his word. When we ask, if someone wants to ask you, what changed when you became a Christian? How would you answer that question? What changed when you became a Christian? I hope the list would be long, because it probably sounded like, well, pretty much everything. How we talked changed. How we lived changed, and that's a very generic how we live. We could give a lot more detail on that. Uh, how we look at God and His Word changed. How we look at the church changed. And you think about how God and the Bible and the church in general looks from the worldly view. It looks like something that many people in the world today says is boring, is a waste of time. You know, Paul tells us that according to man, preaching is foolishness 
But it's through the preaching, uh, through the foolishness of preaching that God chose to save mankind. Through the preaching, delivery of God's word, that's how God chose to change mankind and give him the ability to hear what, what we need to do. Without God's word, we cannot know what it is required of us to have a truly reformed and changed life. And so we think about Isaiah chapter 1, those verses 16 through 18, we find just in those few verses how we are to change our life and how the Christian life is so much different than what we see around us. While everyone else is seeking equal rights or equal this or that, what does God tell us in verse 17? To learn to do good, to seek justice, and then basically help those who are in need. Isn't that what we need all around us today? People today who are just seeking to do what is right and living right and being honest and upright with one another. Those who are living a life that is molded according to the word of God. Can you imagine what the world would be like if just 25% of people today lived according to the word of God? Now we probably have 70, we probably have 40%, maybe more, I don't know. They claim to be a Christian to some extent or some degree, maybe claiming to be a part of some denomination. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying what if people actually lived in according to the word of God? Not denominational idea of it, but actually lived according to the word of God. What would happen if 25% of the world lived like that? Things would change drastically, wouldn't they? What would happen if 50% was like that? The world would be an entirely different place. But instead, because the word of God is not what people would like for it to be and doesn't say what people would like for it to say, that's not the case today. But what we have to realize is what others do should not cause us to change our view of God's word. We still go back to the Bible for all that we do and for all and how we ought to live. And it starts with changing our lives to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And from there, we build ourselves only upward in a spiritual sense. That is the foundation of all that we do. We thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Byway Media by visiting our website, bywaymedia.org. You can find all of our podcasts on all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.